Uh, if you've got a Bible, do me a favor, turn to the Gospel according to John. We'll be in chapter 20, verses 19 through to 23. Uh, obviously, we're taking a break right now from our study in 1 Kings. We'll be taking a break really for the rest of the summer, and we'll jump back into 1 Kings and wrap it up in the fall, and sort of towards the end of our time together tonight, I'll explain what the plan is for the summer. Uh, but for tonight, we are in John chapter 20. Now, I realize a, a good number of people in this room have maybe met my dad before, and more of you have heard about him than have met him. My dad is in some ways sort of a legend among this ministry. He feels like the Paul Bunyan of college and career. And that's probably because I keep using him as a sermon illustration uh, without asking him. So one day you're going to meet my dad and know everything about him and he's going to have no idea who you are. Uh, but my dad is, is probably the most musical person that I've ever met and is incredibly gifted musically without actually ever having had any musical training. He's really, really good at the harmonica, uh, which I think is just the result of him sitting in his favorite chair and playing harmonica to 50,000 Jimmy Buffett records for hours after work every day. But he's really, really good. He can play every harmonica solo in every Jimmy Buffett song. But he also has this really sort of eclectic taste in music as well. He raised me and my brother listening to like Black Sabbath and ACDC and Jimmy Buffett and country artists whose names I've blotted out from my mind because I hate country. Uh, and, and then all of these other sort of classic rock bands. And, and there's this there's this gift in being raised in this sort of eclectic environment where I feel like I can kind of appreciate all sorts of music now, all sorts of different genres. But in spite of the fact that my dad raised me on classic rock, if it's not something that I listened to growing up with my dad, I generally despise classic rock. So I'm sorry if I'm hurting your feelings. Uh, classic rock makes me physically ill. I just cannot stand it as a genre of music at all. And, and the lowest of the dregs of musical uh, heresy are really classic rock songs produced in the 60s and the early 70s. So like the Beatles, worst band of all time. <laughs> uh, the Grateful Dead, almost as bad as the Beatles. If you wanted to torture me for information, the best way you could do it is just by putting a Beatles record on. I would tell you whatever you wanted to know within seconds. It's just unbearable. Really, it's, it's all the stuff that sort of came through the, the hippie movement, the free love movement. I just I can't stand it. And it's, it's interesting in, in looking back, some of you are not going to listen to a single thing else that I said because I just slayed the sacred cow of John Lennon and Paul McCartney, but they're awful. Um, the, it's interesting to look at that period of musical history because the, the, the people involved in things like Woodstock and the hippie movement, the free, free love movement, uh, really didn't think that they were just participating in sort of a new musical trend. Like they didn't just see themselves as being a part of a change in America's taste in terms of what they like to hear on the radio, but they saw themselves as being a part of this movement that was in some way bigger than themselves, that was changing the way that people thought about relationships and society and things like drug use and things like romance. And They saw themselves as being a part not just of a musical movement, but sort of a, a movement to change the world. Now, whether they did or didn't change the world, I guess, is up to the historians, it's up to the sociologists, but they felt like they were a part of something that would continue on after them, after which nothing would be the same. And that's not unique to the hippies in the 60s and 70s. This seems to be sort of a, a human phenomenon, that we desperately want to feel like we're a part of something that uh, 
begins before us and will extend long after we've expired. We, we want to feel like we're a part of some sort of a world-changing movement that will shift uh, things on its axis. We want to be a part of something transcendent. At least that's what history shows that people are drawn to. C.S. Lewis, this, this uh, great thinker from Oxford, so many years ago, he was, he was kind of examining himself. And, and he's looking at the things that he desires, and he sort of notices that most of the things that he wants have real-life ways of being answered. So, like, uh, you're lonely, you can go make a friend, or you can go find a boyfriend or girlfriend, or you can try. Maybe, maybe you've been lonely and tried to find a boyfriend or girlfriend, it's not going so well for you. But there's, there's a way to answer that longing. You're... You're thirsty, you can go get something to drink. Water's free here. Uh, you're hungry, you can go find something to eat. You're tired, you can go to sleep. It takes nothing to go to sleep. You just close your eyes and it just happens. So there's these natural needs that have these natural answers. But, but then he, he sort of looked a little bit more into himself and he said, but there's, there's this longing I have for transcendence, this, this longing to be a part of something bigger than myself. And there's nothing in this world that can actually satisfy that. There's nothing in the world out there as I see it that can actually meet this longing. And so he says, well, if I find in myself desires that can't be answered by this world, then I have to conclude that I'm not just meant for this world. Maybe there's parts of me that are in my loneliness and my hunger and my thirst, but there's parts of me that are meant for another world. There's parts of me that are meant for the transcendent. And in, in some way, each of us seems to long to, to find our place in this greater story that stretches from before we were till after we will be. We, we have this, this desire for transcendence. We have this desire to be caught in, up in something bigger than ourselves, whether that's the terrible music of the Beatles in Woodstock, uh, or whether that's a, a social movement, whether that's a, a political vision for what our country should look like. We're, we're swept up in these sort of ideas. And I think our, our text in John for the evening sort of puts forward uh, what Jesus says the greater story is, what Jesus says the great movement of history is, what Jesus says the great chorus is that we lend our voices to. And so we come to John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23, but let me give you just a little bit of context as to what's going on here, because I think that's important. Uh, there's four Gospels in your Bible. Uh, the first three of them are called the Synoptics. They tend to sound pretty similar. They tend to tell a similar story. They tend to tell the same stories with slightly different phrasing. John looks totally different. Uh, and that's probably because John is the last gospel written. I don't know if you've ever been in like, a circle of friends and something really awesome has happened and one of your friends jumps in and tells the cool story before you can. Uh, maybe you've been the friend who just repeats the story that your friend next to you said so you can kind of cash in on the laughs. You're the bane of, of social interactions. Because once the story's been told, you don't need to just tell it again so that people will laugh at you retelling the story that Jimmy just told. But sometimes, Jimmy leaves things out of the story. And so you jumping in at the end and saying, oh, I'm sorry, Jimmy, my bad. <laughs> Jimmy tells great stories. <laughs> sometimes, Jonathan Smith <laughs> leaves things out of the story. And so somebody has to come along and say, yeah, everything he said is true, but there's things that he, he didn't say. There's, there's some things that'll make the story a little bit clearer that might even make it funnier because there's more context that John Smith didn't give. 
And this is sort of what John Gospel author is doing. He assumes that you've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He doesn't have a need to tell the same thing that Matthew, Mark, and Luke said. Again, he, there's no point in saying it. It's been said three times. But there are some things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have not mentioned that give context and weight and significance to what they've said. And so John, at the end, sort of fills in the gaps of these Gospels. And our text in particular, he's filling in the gaps of the end of Luke 24. We just sang a portion of Luke 24 in our worship, but at the end of that chapter, Jesus appears to the disciples, and Luke mentions some of the things that he said. John says, hey, here's some of the things that Luke left out. But it's also, it's also important to recognize what's happening in the story. There's a, there's a drive-in movie theater on the road that I live off of, Hillsborough Avenue. It's a drive-in movie theater slash place for lots of crime, I would say. And the crazy thing about the drive-in is that you can movie hop and nobody's going to stop you. You just like turn your car on and drive to the other screen. And for a while, I would watch a movie, and if the movie wasn't very good, I'd just start my car and I'd just drive to another screen. But I'd be hopping in in the middle of the movie. I would have no—I mean, I might have watched it in my rear view while I was trying to watch the movie I paid for. But but you're sort of at a loss as to what's going on. The weight of the moment that you walk into is lost on you because you haven't seen everything that's led up to it. It's similar here. We need to have kind of an understanding of what we're jumping into. So seven days before John 20, the disciples have just entered the city of Jerusalem with Jesus, this rabbi who called them out of their old lives and into this new life. And Jesus is welcomed like a king into the city. The disciples, they get a lot of crap in Christian circles because they deserve it, by and large. They're, they're not the smartest bunch, they're actually far below the smartest bunch. Um, they're blue-collar, working-class, poor men who had Jesus not intervened in anything that they're doing, their lives would have been utterly unremarkable. You would never even know who they were. They're, they're not just poor, um, but they're living these lives that are ultimately going to break them. Uh, and then their children will, will live this life that will wear them down. Once Peter's back gives out and he can no longer haul the fish into the boat, all that's left for him is to wait for death. Uh, Matthew is, is this man who's a tax collector who's hated by the wider society. So when, when Jesus calls these men to follow him, he's calling them out of this, this life of obscurity and this, this life of quiet desperation into something bigger. They're caught up into this grand story that each of us so long for, this talk about the kingdom of God, this, this talk about things being made right in the world. And so as they ride into Jerusalem with Jesus and he's welcomed as a king, they're thinking, finally, I'm a part of something that matters. My life is not going to be spent in obscurity and insignificance, breaking my back, pulling fish in from the Sea of Galilee. And then all of those hopes and all of those dreams die on a Roman cross by the end of the week. I don't, I don't know if we adequately do justice to the darkness of what the disciples probably experienced between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Because on Good Friday, they lost everything. Their world died on that cross with the man that they'd followed for three years. I mean, this is the equivalent of you spending 10 years working towards your PhD to find out that the school is unaccredited and you've just wasted all of your time. Uh, this is the equivalent of, of you marrying someone you believe to be the love of your life and finding out that they've been cheating on you since your first date. 
right? This is the equivalent of you quitting uh, your job that pays well to start a career that'll be your dream career to find out that it's actually like a scam and you don't have a Ugandan prince for a cousin who needs you to just wire transfer all your money. Like this is, this is their world unraveling in front of them. And this is coupled with the fact that Jesus is, is executed for, for being a criminal, an enemy of the state. And the next logical step when you kill an enemy of the state, is to go find all of his co-conspirators and kill them too. So the disciples find themselves, as we kind of step into this text, essentially waiting to be round up and put to death and wondering if they were to survive this, if it's even worth living to go back home to the family that said, you're crazy for quitting your good fishing, you're quitting your good fishing job to follow this guy and trying to explain to them what happened. And this is where we find ourselves in chapter 20. We're told in verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, because the disciples were in fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, and Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So this is the scene. The disciples have locked themselves in a room out of fear that the people who killed Jesus are about to come and kill them. There's rumors sort of circulating that Jesus is alive, but most of these rumors have come from women in their group. And I, I don't mean this as a slight against the ladies in the room, but in the ancient world, the testimony of women was not well respected. Uh, falsely so. You all are way smarter than we are. But in an ancient court of law, it took multiple women's testimonies to add up to a man's testimony. So you have the disciples saying, well, some of the women in our group said that he's alive, but they probably just snapped. Like they've probably, under the weight of their grief, sort of given up. They're seeing things. We're waiting to die. They're seeing things. It's a bad situation. And in, in the middle of this, Jesus just appears. Like the, the, the term in the, the ESV is that Jesus sort of um, came and stood among them. And that makes it sound like he sort of like opened the door and maybe the lock fell off and he walked in. The literal Greek is he just appears out of nowhere. And the first thing he says is, peace be with you. Now, you may think that there's some deep spiritual meaning to this, and there may well be one that I missed this week. But I think the, the first peace be with you from Jesus is probably pragmatic because they're losing their ever-loving minds. Like the disciples are probably having a full-blown meltdown in this moment. Uh, John, uh, not John, but Luke actually says when he's recording this event that they thought that they'd saw, seen a ghost and that they're utterly terrified. So in my mind, John is like banging on the door, begging for someone to let him out. Peter's saying Hail Marys or the ancient equivalent in the corner. Like they're losing their minds. And Jesus is just like, hey, chill out. Peace be with you. But then we're told that he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, and Jesus says the same thing again, peace be with you. It's interesting to me that the same words spoken between the same two parties can mean such different things when the circumstances around them changes. So imagine, if you will, on the day of a wedding, a husband saying to a wife, I love you, and then 60 years later, on her deathbed, a husband saying to a wife, I love you. Same words, same two parties. But those words don't mean nearly the same thing. 
one of them is sort of this statement of joy and promise. The other one is the statement of finality and loss. All that changed was the context. Uh, imagine, as uh, some of you I'm sure are thinking, um, uh, a father saying to a son or a daughter uh, on the eve before an exam, you're going to be fine. That's, that's a word of comfort. But imagine that same father saying to a son who's just been hit by a car in the back of an ambulance, you're going to be fine. That, that sounds like words of desperation. It, it changes the words. Even though it's the same two people talking, saying the exact same thing, the frame around it has shifted. Jesus opens by saying, peace be with you. But then he says it again, and everything has changed. What, what's changed in particular is that he's shown them his hands and his side. Now, the, the term hands in Greek actually basically encompasses like the tips of your fingers down to around your elbow. So this is all hand in Greek. So what's likely happened is that Jesus has specifically shown them his wrists where the, the nails have gone through for the crucifixion and his side where the Roman spear has pierced him. And it's in light of this shift in the context that he says, peace. what we should maybe consider is the significance of what those wounds represent and why they lead to peace. Because Jesus' wrists with holes gouged in them and his side with a spear wound represents and is itself the mark of the full wrath of the Roman Empire coming down on him. It, it's, it's a symbol of the full weight of earthly power and authority doing its very best to crush him. Like, it's, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around something as, as significant as Rome. There's never been a society and empire as significant, as powerful, and as sprawling as the Roman Empire was. It is the most powerful physical conglomeration of people that the disciples can imagine, and the full weight of it has just come down on Jesus. And it manifests itself in his pierced hands and side. Jesus holds out that, that he has been literally crushed by the Roman Empire, and yet he stands before them, having overcome this, and he says, peace be with you. You're hiding in here because you're afraid of what the people who killed me might do to you, but look what I've done in overcoming their very worst. Peace be with you in light of this. The disciples may not recognize it yet, but... but the wounds in Jesus' hand and his side also demonstrate that the full weight of the wrath of God against sin has been levied against Jesus. That on the cross, he has been crushed for our iniquities. No doubt Peter is utterly guilt-ridden by the things he's done, feeling the weight of having betrayed his friend and his Lord. The other disciples are horrified at what they've sat through and how they've failed to do anything. They're, they're crushed by the weight of their failures. But Jesus has been crushed for them so that they might be forgiven. So Jesus, in light of this, holds out his hand and his side and he says, peace be with you. Not only has Rome done its worst to me, but I've borne the full wrath of God against you. In light of this, peace be with you. And we probably shouldn't miss the fact that all of these fatal wounds, from the holes in his wrist to the, the wound in his side to the scarring from the crown of thorns, all of these fatal blows 
are being presented by somebody who's not dead but alive. Uh, I, I mentioned this uh, during our Good Friday service. Um, but I was, uh, I was talking to Matt Ryan, who recently got a dog. And uh, it's a great dog. And one of the things that Matt said that, that I thought was insightful uh, is that animals teach us something about death. Uh, because animals don't live forever. They live a, a much smaller portion of human life. And I experienced that uh, a couple months ago when I, when I had to put my cat down, which was the first time I've had to do anything like this. And it just reminded me in, in a really significant way of the fact that we sort of coddle death and celebrate death and plaster over death. And when someone dies, uh, we say things that are vague and flowery and precious moments And we, we try to find ways to make death seem not so bad. But... Death is not a friend to be welcomed. It's an enemy to be crushed. It's not a thing to be celebrated. It is an invasion into God's good world. And Jesus has felt the full weight of the crushing power of death, and yet here he stands having overcome it. Jesus has, has felt the full weight of the death blow of that tyrant that has lorded itself over humanity since the Garden of Eden. And here he stands, death having worked in reverse and bent its knee to the one who's triumphed over it. And he says in light of that, look at my hands, look at my side. This thing that you've lived your lives in fear of that will cut short all of your hopes and dreams, I've triumphed over it. In light of that, peace be with you. There's nothing that the state can do to you to crush you. There's nothing that the wrath of God can do in light of what I've accomplished, and death itself has no power over you. Peace, peace be with you. But then he goes on. You know, it's, it's right around this time every year that I end up attending a whole lot of graduations because people graduate. And that's a good thing. Like, I'm, I'm super excited for you all when you graduate college please invite me. I'm, I'm happy to celebrate that with you. I, it sounds like I'm lying. I'm not lying. Graduations are cool. <laughs> Graduations are great. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> uh, but I'll tell you what I don't like about graduations. The speeches at the beginning. Because they're almost always awful. And, and they just get worse. Like they start with the best sort of of them. And it gets worse and worse and worse until it finally, finally like reaches its low point just at the bottom of worst things I can imagine next to the Beatles with <laughs> the valedictorian or class president speech. Maybe you were that and you gave that speech. I'm sure you did a great job. <laughs> but I, I just can't stand them. <laughs> and, and it's because in every speech I've sat through, they try and tap into this longing that we talked about earlier, this, this longing to be a part of something bigger than yourself. And they, they say all these cliche things that just seem to fall flat, and I just end up rolling my eyes and reading a book while they talk and trying to ignore them. Like, I've been to a ton of, of USF graduations, and there's always, including my own, by the way, they always say something like, you know, no matter what happens in life, you'll always look back and remember the fact that you're one of the few and proud people who can call yourself a USF bull. And in my head I go, there's 30,000 people at this college. Like, you're not, it's not that special. <laughs> or, or like, you know, wherever life takes you as you go out and change the world, and I stop right there and I go, most people who graduate don't change anything. 
But when you go out and change the world, you know, you'll always remember that you're part of the elite group of people who are UCF Knights or Florida Gators or Florida State Seminoles. And I think to myself, like, holy cow, at 70 years old, when my, my wife has died, my child has died, I've lost my job, any bad thing that could happen, do you, do you really expect me to just stare misty-eyed out of the window and go, but I graduated from the number one party school in the country. Like, that's, that's so deeply moving, right? It's, it's, so, it's so flat, it's so empty, it's such a weak story to hold out in front of somebody and say, let this carry you through the seasons of life. Get swept up in this movement, be caught up in, in this idea, in this cause. It's, it's just, it's, it's pathetic. It's a pathetic answer to such a deep-seated human need. But Jesus offers us a different story. He invites us to be caught up in in a different movement than the one that's so often held out in front of us. In verse 21, he says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus, over and over and over again in John's Gospel, refers to himself as the sent one, uh, that he has been sent into the world. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he's a little less explicit, but he keeps making these I have come statements. I have come to cast fire on the earth. I have come to seek and save that which was lost. Implying that he's, he's come from somewhere, he's been sent by someone to accomplish something. And as you sort of reflect on all that the New Testament says about Jesus, it becomes really apparent that the sent one is a, is a great way to describe who he is. From eternity past, he's, he's begotten by the Father, imaged forth from the Father. In time and space, he steps into creation. He is sent into the world to seek and save the lost. And here now, at the end of his sending mission, the sent one becomes the sender. He breathes out the Spirit. And then he takes those whom he was sent to, and he sends them out in his name. I'm... I'm about to go to the beach for the weekend, which is wildly risky for me. Uh, it's the beach. It's a lot. There's a lot of sand. There's a lot of water. A lot of things that could go wrong. <laughs> and one of the things that I, I grew up being afraid of as a kid um, was the undercurrent, the, the undertow that would sort of happen near the shoreline and the, the deeper water. Uh, because I had a friend whose mom had gotten sucked out to sea in the under, undertow, and she'd survived, but it was this horror story that sort of haunted me as a kid. The ocean's a terrifying place. We should get rid of it. Uh, <laughs> but, but there is this sense in this great movement that Jesus sort of tells us that we as Christians have been brought into, this great movement of sending that the Father images forth the Son and sends the Son into the world, and then the Son and the Father breathe out the Spirit, and the Spirit becomes this undertow that draws us out into the vast ocean of what God is up to in the world. He draws us into the work of God so that we are now sent even as Christ was sent into the world, caught up into the great mission of God. This mission that's, that's begun since before the foundations of the world, that his name would be made great among the peoples, that carries on even after we die, that one day every tribe and every tongue and every nation would confess that the sent one, Jesus Christ, is Lord. We're drawn out into that in the power of the Spirit. 
We're drawn out into the world by the Spirit to proclaim what Jesus has just made apparent to these disciples, that he is king above all earthly rulers, powers, and authorities, that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not because Caesar has done his worst and Christ has triumphed still. We're, we're drawn out by the Spirit and sent out into the world to declare that the wrath of God has been satisfied, that Jesus has been crucified and raised for the forgiveness of sins. We're drawn out into the world by the power of the Spirit to declare to people who have spent their whole lives as slaves to the fear of dying that Jesus has triumphed over death. Drawn into this great movement of God, this greater story than our pathetic valedictorian speeches about being a UCF knight. Drawn into this great movement of being sent by the sent one to declare what he's done. Can, can I tell you that this is why we send teams to Scotland? This is why we send gifts to the people in Scotland. Not because Scotland is cool and you can get a lot of great Instagram pictures that will get mad likes, but because God is up to something in the world that the name of Jesus would be declared and made great. And we want to participate in that by sending people out. This is why we as a church are doing things like go forward where we're revitalizing churches that have sort of lost their way, where we're participating in things like the Women's Resource Center, where we're building a structure so that we here will be equipped to declare the gospel, to equip people, to train people, to send them out to proclaim what Jesus has done to the next generation. And in some way, John 20 is what I hope is happening here every week when we gather together at College and Career, that we're assembled, that the risen Christ is here among us, that through the songs that we sing, through the scripture that's preached as you come to the Lord's table, that you would see his wounds of victory. And then the Spirit would drive you and send you out into the world just as Christ was sent to proclaim the good news. Like, man, if, if you think that this ministry exists just so you can learn a lot of big philosophical terms and hear a couple cool quotes by dead church fathers, you've misunderstood fundamentally what we're about. We exist to have this John 20 moment where we are gathered together, where we see the risen Christ, where you are equipped to go and be sent into the world to proclaim his victory to the people in your school, to the people at your job, to the people in your families. So that when we come back together, there would be more of us who have seen and heard the good news that Jesus has triumphed over every ruler, every authority, over our sin, over death itself, and then more would be sent out so that the gospel would go forward in power. That's a story worth getting swept up in and drawn along by.